Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. And this morning, I am thrilled to introduce a guest speaker for this topic. So if you've come out to our med- midweek lectures, I hate to say it, this is not an insult to the other teachers, but we've sort of had a fan favorite. I'm not going to lie. And his name is Pastor Bill Schott. Uh, Bill is the chair of Bible down at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale for the school. He's an associate pastor there. Um, He was also, this is the most important piece of information I think I need to share in introducing him. He was the dean of students at Calvary Christian Academy when I was a sophomore. So he had had a job. He had work to do when he was a dean of students. Um, Part of Bill's testimony in coming to faith in Jesus is me being born again. I'm just kidding. That's not true. But it could be. It could be. Like, how do I know there's a God? Andrew Lundy is, is pastoring a church, let alone, let alone walking with Jesus. And so uh, God has used this man in a very special way in my family's life, in my personal life. I'm thrilled for him today to share on eschatology. Would you guys give it up for Pastor Bill Schott? Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah. Can I pray for you real quick? Please. Lord, we're so thankful this morning for uh, your servant, Lord, for uh, the blessing of having Pastor Bill with us here as a church, and uh, we are expectant and excited for the words that you want to speak to us through him. So we just invite your Holy Spirit to be loud, to be clear, to work in our lives. Give us ears to hear what you want to say through Pastor Bill. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, good to see you. Good to worship with you this morning. And, um, you know, Andrew asked me a while back if I would teach, uh, and when I asked him the topic, he said eschatology. And I said, well, I don't know that my end times view matches your end times view and and, uh, many others. Um, So I don't know that I would want to. Uh, talk about eschatology. Um, and what he said is one of the reasons why I'm so proud of him and, and the journey he's been on is he said there's so, so many things in common that the entire Church of Christ has. So whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, uh, amillennial, and uh, some of you are trying to look up your theological dictionaries going, what is he talking about right now? Well, I'm here to say with all certainty that it is not something we're talking about today. Okay, so um, because here's why we could spend our 45 minutes or so here this morning together discussing pre-trib or whichever end times view we go with. And there's a lot of really good, smart scholars out there that would say that was wrong and that was wrong. And we can give a different view and then other scholars would say that is wrong and all of those things. Yet all of us, if we're in Christ, are going to heaven. Every one of us is going to heaven if we're in Christ. And then we'll be able to point fingers and say who was right and who was wrong for sure. (laughs) But until then, I would rather spend our brief time together going over some of the certainties about the end time, the things that are absolutely certain. And so what I've done is first, as you saw, the first uh, area of scripture we're going to go to is the book of Acts. Um, I want to share something from Acts chapter 1 there to start our time together. And... Although 
Andrew did open us in prayer. I just don't feel right opening the Bible and not praying for her. So may I ask God to bless the study as well, if you don't mind praying with me. Lord God, in Jesus' name, we come to you. And God, you are God and you are on a throne, and that means we are not. So we bow our knee to you, Lord. And we pray that you would remove from us every bit of competition we give you, Lord, to sit on our own thrones. And we ask that you would find us to be humble servants, Lord, filled with the joy that comes with serving you. So, Lord, you are the king of our hearts, and we pray that you would rule completely over us because we trust you so much. And we are so dependent upon you, Lord. We don't want to look anywhere else. So as Peter said to you, Lord, where else are we to go? You have the words of eternal life. And may that be our story. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 9, this is after Jesus rose from the dead. He asked his apostles to meet him in Galilee. And this is, this is what happens in Acts 1.9. It says, now when he, being Jesus, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Can you anticipate, feel, imagine the wonder of the moment, okay? Now, you know, if, if Andrew's this great teacher and you're coming here every Sunday to hear Andrew teach and Andrew teach, you know what will give him tremendous credibility to ensure that you would follow the rest of your life if he just ascended out of the room and, and floated home, right? You go, there's something unique and different about that guy, correct? All right? And he won't, I promise you, but realize that's the moment these people are in. This teacher that they followed, and they've seen other miracles, so it wasn't utterly surprising to them, but it's still a man floating up into the clouds in plain sight for all to see, and it's recorded to us in the most historical book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, the one where the heart of it is to give history. The book of Acts has more names, dates, and places that have been proven archaeologically over and over again than any book of the New Testament. So that secular scholars of archaeology and history will say that the Apostle Luke, who wrote Acts, should not just be regarded as a physician, as he's introduced to us as a doctor, but as one of the world's greatest historians. That's how great at recording history Luke is, that the guys who actually do history say he's one of the greats at recording history. And what does he record? Let's read it one more time. When Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? I'd say, because our friend just floated up there, right? But, but the point the angel makes is this. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, in other words, now that you're an eyewitness to this ascension of Christ, and now you're an ear witness to an angel's proclamation, you're an eyewitness and you're an ear witness, what do you need to know as somebody who has the certainty of this ascension of Christ? He says, so will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's saying, as sure as you are that you just saw him go up into the sky, as sure as you are as you're hearing the voice of these angels tell you about this, that's the certainty that he's coming back. 
the certainty of the second coming, and no matter what end times view you hold, you agree with that. He's coming again. Amen? Jesus is coming again. So with that certainty, here's the direction in eschatology that I want to take with you folks this morning. And we're going to start in John chapter 4. You see, the reason why I chose John chapter 4 to start a talk on eschatology is for this reason. The Bible begins, well, let me put it this way. These 66 books that Andrew talked about, the unity that he talked about with these 66 books, if somebody were to ask me if what I would identify as one common theme, if I had identified one theme throughout these 66 books that tied them all together, I would say it's a wedding theme. There's this wedding theme that is consistent throughout the 66 books. The Bible begins with a wedding. You do not have two people on the earth that are not wed together. As soon as there's a second person, Eve, there's a, there's a marriage. Okay? So the Bible begins with a wedding and the two being one flesh. The Bible ends at a wedding feast. So the 66 books over 1,400 years written by 40 authors and other contributors on three different continents is trying to tell us that you're invited to a wedding and God has prepared a wedding feast and the unbelievable stubbornness of the human heart to get us to go there, okay? Your life is one giant response to an invitation to a wedding feast to where Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. Now, it's not just the Bible that begins and ends with a wedding, but it's the ministry of Christ that begins and ends with a wedding theme. You see, early on, Jesus is introduced to us as a bridegroom. John the Baptist, he's the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus himself will refer himself uh, as a bridegroom. In John chapter 3, when asked why his disciples don't fast, his answer in verse 29 is, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. That was actually the John the Baptist quote. Jesus, Jesus Christ is presented as a bridegroom, and what is a bridegroom in search of? A bride. Now, to understand this wedding theme, we can't think of 21st century American weddings. That's not how this theme is presented to us in the Bible. We must understand weddings as a first century Jewish person understood weddings. In the first century, a father would choose a bride for his son. And this would have to be the most pressing duty a father had. Because can you imagine the responsibility of choosing a bride for your son that the, the moment that you introduce this bride to your son, you're going to desperately want him to be very delighted with that choice. But it's not just for the moment, is it? He needs to be delighted in a year, and she needs to be delighted in a year. Ten years later, they both need to be delighted. And God willing, 50 years later, they need to both be delighted. How do you choose that person? And why does the Bible present 
the wedding theme of all of Scripture, and Jesus' ministry in the form of a bridegroom pursuing a bride when that's their understanding of weddings as a father choosing a bride for his son. You see, the father would have to choose a bride that both delighted his son in the moment and would delight his son for the rest of his life. And if you sit here saved today in your chair, then God looked at you and said, you delight my son, and you always will. How do you like that? That was said of you. Amen? Amen. Now, in John chapter 4, with this understanding of the wedding theme, let's begin to read in verse 1. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So when he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, there is a Jacob theme that runs through John 4. And here we get Jacob actually named for us. Verse 6, we'll name Jacob again. It says, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well It was about the sixth hour. Does anybody know how to tell time biblically to know what the sixth hour is? They started counting their day, they started counting their hours at 6 a.m. So what time is the sixth hour? Noon. So the Bible's letting you know this is high noon. Because when you read the stories of of, um, wells in the Old Testament and them fetching water. I almost said fetching a pail of water because Jack and Jill's in my head for my two-year-old granddaughter listening to it all day long. But, but when they went to get water from these wells, they would go at dusk. If you lived in the Middle Eastern deserts, why would you go at dusk? It's a lot cooler, right? And you went and the women would go in groups for safety. So you're being introduced to a woman that's going to well at high noon and she's alone. What do you think that's, the Bible's telling you about her already? She's isolated. She's rejected. She's uh, alone. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, this is who the Samaritans were. When the Assyrians took the Israelites captive and then released them, there were many, that, many Jewish women that went against God's law of not intermarrying and married an Assyrian. So now that mixed blood of Assyrian and Jew became the Samaritans. So the Jews despised Samaritans because of that intermarriage that took away the pureness of their, their bloodline. So she acknowledges that and says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, now here's how I'd like you to read your Bibles, okay? Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, that should invite the reader of the Bible to say, hey, do I know the gift of God? Okay? Now think of your scriptures. What would you say the gift of God is? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin of death is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then what does it say for everybody, regardless? 
eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? Here's one thing that the 8 billion people on our planet have in common right now. They all want eternal life. Nobody wants to expire. So it becomes incumbent upon us to find out what's the most credible story there is about how to go on forever. And that's where Christianity rises above the rest. If you knew the gift of God and who, it's, who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is always saying stuff that makes you scratch your head, okay? Now, I, I've, drink, I've drank in smart water, and some would say it didn't work on me, but uh, I've drank in, um, what's other waters? Uh, Zephyr Hills water and all these different waters, but what is this living water he's speaking of? Make you scratch your head, right? What would this woman understand living water to be? The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now, Jesus is presenting a heavenly truth here. He wants to give her living water. Yet she only has earthly understandings, correct? She's like, where's your pail? You don't have a pail. How are you going to give water without a pail, right? And then now verse 12 I think becomes the centerpiece of this entire story. This, to me, is where the heart of the story lies. Verse 12, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now, why do I think her asking Jesus, Are you greater than our father Jacob, is the centerpiece of the story? Well, it's because we're about to read. We're about to read, as, as we've already read, she's there at noon, which is not normal. She's by herself, which is not normal, and we're going to read that she's been married and divorced five times, correct? We're also going to read that she's given up on marriage. She's quit. She's now living out of wedlock with a sixth man, correct? Okay? So this, so this Samaritan woman is being presented to you and I through this chapter as the unlovely woman of the New Testament. And here's why I word it that way. Remember I told you about the Jacob theme that's running through this? Who's the unlovely woman of the Old Testament? It was one of Jacob's wives, Leah. And the Bible says she remained unloved because, and, and the, the Hebrew phrase is, her eyes were dim, which is a Hebrew idiom for she was unlovely. She remained unloved because she was unlovely, and now we have the unlovely woman of the New Testament. And what's the cry of her heart? Are you greater than Jacob? who cannot love the unlovely. I need a greater than Jacob. I need somebody who can love my heart, not like the five men that divorced me, not like the sixth one who won't even marry me. I need a greater than Jacob. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You don't hear that on a Zephyr Hills commercial, do you? Okay. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst and come here to draw. She still has an earthly understanding, correct? I teach high school Bible for the last 23 years, so I've sent 23 graduating classes of Christian educated students off to college which I call the palaces of atheism in our society. 
Uh, it's not written in their mission statements, but it's certainly played out as a mission to destroy any faith that walks into their hallways. So when I see this woman say, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw, she's carrying an earthly understanding into a heavenly truth that Jesus is trying to give her. And I can tell you that that is the great divide between atheism and Christianity, is earthly understandings are offered towards spiritual truths. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. In other words, same cross, right? It's the same exact cross. The cross is not an IQ test. It's not, this is, I'm, I'm not trying to be insulting, but you're not here because you're the smartest of the bunch. You're here because your heart is right. Your heart has been made right. Okay? The cross is not an IQ test. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us it's a heart test. And when we talk about the unity of the Bible, the Bible is always telling you things throughout a book of the Bible or even many books of the Bible that if you simply read it the way that we've, we train people to read it, we treat them to read it verse by verse and then take that verse apart, make it a life verse, memorize it, and try and apply it to your life. That close-up view blinds you to so much truth. There's times you got to back up. you got to see the whole thing. you got to see the whole mosaic laid out in front of you. So when, if, if, when 1 Corinthians 1 tells you that the same cross that is foolishness to those who are perishing is power to those who are being saved, I want you to consider this. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, there's a question asked by the Magi to King Herod. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. The question is this. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Familiar? Notice the next verse doesn't say three miles that way, hang a left, and you'll see a barn and he's laying there. Doesn't say that, does it? But instead, Matthew starts describing a life to you, the life of Jesus, demonstrating fulfilled prophecy and miracles and things like that, and that's supposed to be answering the question for you. But in Matthew 27, you get a very direct answer. I want to point out to you how that answer is given to us. In Matthew 27, the question, where has he been born king of the Jews, is answered when a beaten, bloodied, spat upon, rejected man is hung on a cross, and they put a sign over his head, and it says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Why does the answer come when Jesus looks least like a king? Because it's a test of your heart, not of your mind. If you can look at the beaten, bloody Jesus hanging on a cross and your heart say, that's my king, then you're saved. If you look at that beaten, bloody man on that cross and say, what a fool. What did he get himself into? Why didn't he just give up the story of being the king of the Jews? then you're not. The same cross is foolishness to the perishing and power to the saved. It's not an IQ test. It's a heart test. So, so Jesus says, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Now, Jesus knows exactly the situation he's trying to create. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now, when you understand this wedding theme of the Bible, you'll realize what Jesus is saying is, if you don't have him, 
then I don't care if you're married right now, you have no husband. He's coming as your bridegroom. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. Now you're going to see how kind he can be with his words. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. So she says, I have no husband. (laughs) He says, yes, you've had five, and the one you're living with now out of wedlock is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. Isn't that a kind way of saying that? Very gracious way of saying that. Yes. Now, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. That's a good way to change the subject, right? Okay. Now, how many men does the Bible say she's been with? Six. Six is the biblical number for imperfection, for falling short. What's the number for completion? Seven. Jesus stands in front of her as her seventh. He's the bridegroom. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you, Jews, say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Now, she starts with this question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And as she has this very dysfunctional life, where is her hope still? I know Messiah is coming. Okay? I've been divorced five times. You can imagine the pain of that. I'm living with somebody who will not marry me or I will not marry. The pain of that. And now, where's her hope? I know Messiah is coming. I know Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, can you imagine her heart when she hears, I who speak to you am he. All of your longings are about to be satisfied. All of your desires are going to be satisfied. All of your pain is going to be healed. And everything that you were that makes you come here without a friend is going to change. Because I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. The Bible just told you of her salvation. What words did the Bible use to tell you that this woman just got saved? She received the living water. How do we know that? Because she shows up at this well with a water pot. Why? Because she's fetching water from a well. Jesus says, drink that water, you'll thirst again. I want to give you living water, which is a gift of God. And we said that gift of God is what? Eternal life. And the fact that the Bible says this, the woman put down her water pot and then went into the city. Shows you that she has no need for that water anymore. She's received the living water and she doesn't need to come there to draw anymore. You see it? Okay, this is how the Bible talks to you. This is why one of the most unfortunate things in your Bible is that 
Many centuries ago, people put chapters in these Bibles because we like to stop at the end of a chapter, put it down, come back the next day, start a new chapter. But the Bible's still talking straight through this stuff, okay? So you got to make sure when you start reading a chapter, go back to the chapter before and at least read the last paragraph and see how it blends together because this is all one story for us. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Now, spiritual truth, earthly understandings. We talked about that, right? So what would you have thought if Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know about? You would have looked at me and said, he's got a snicker bar up his sleeve, doesn't he? Right? Okay. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, listen very carefully, because so many of these verses are life-changing if you really just let them sink into your heart. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Now, how many times are you going to pursue food today? No less than three to five, correct? Three to five. How often are you going to pursue the word of God today? True food. How often are you going to Share the word of God the way you share your food, okay? Jesus says, listen, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He's directing their gaze somewhere. He's saying, you think that there's three months, and, the, and, and, and physically you're right. From this time, three months, and then the harvest, and you're going to collect all your food. He says, but I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields are already white for harvest. And I really believe what he's pointing at is all of these Samaritans from the village where this woman just went to tell them about Jesus, they're coming to him now. And in their white robes, he's saying, look at them. This is the harvest. The harvest is already white. It's already ripe. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. And what did she say? Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. What things did they talk about that she did? All dysfunctional, correct? Listen. Your mess becomes your message. Your trial becomes your testimony. That's what marrying Jesus does. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, or for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ the Savior of the world. Now, after the two days, he departed from there, and he went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. At the what? Watch this now. For they had also gone to the feast. Now, we had a wedding here. Did you see it? She became what? The bride of Jesus Christ in this. He restores her loveliness. 
Her loveliness is found in him, not in the exterior things that made five for five divorces and living outside of the context of marriage uh, with another man. Jesus restores that loveliness to her. So what's the answer to her question that, that this whole chapter is centered on? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He says, watch and see, right? She, she becomes the lovely woman now. She has her loveliness restored to her. Now Jesus mentions the feast. So we have the wedding, and what I would say to you is this. When we talk about end times, let's not talk to them about them outside of the context of present times. What are the present times? You're going to see in Matthew 22 that you're invited to a wedding. You're invited to a wedding. And there's going to be a wedding feast. And as Jesus ends on that note of the feast, let's go to Matthew 22 and look at this wedding feast. So, in Romans 3, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, correct? We are all unlovely, correct? We agree? All of us have this unloveliness that we need, we need restoration in. We need our bridegroom to come. And you, there might be guys sitting out here saying, I don't want to be no bride, you know? But this is spiritual. This is not physical. Um, the Apostle Paul will say, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, correct? So this is not a... Uh, a physical thing that we're talking about. So uh, guys should be super happy to be the bride of Christ. All right, in Matthew 22, so our present day is your wedding to Jesus. That's your salvation. Okay, we're going to talk about a little bit in this parable. We'll see what we do as this bride of Christ, but I want to now point us to the wedding feast, which the book of Revelation has as the final event. In fact, uh, you know, with all the students that I have over so many years, I get asked a ton of times, what is heaven like? And I always say this, the Bible says it's one perpetual wedding feast, okay? A wedding is supposed to be the happiest occasion that we have, and the feast is the most fun part of the happiest occasion that we have. So heaven is like one continuous wedding feast. But Matthew 22 will come with warning attached. So we must pay attention. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He always tells these parables not as the king, but as the, the son of the king. Right? So you get the father and the son picture here. And I believe in my heart, Walt Disney created a multi-billion dollar industry because he caught on to that gospel theme. How many of Disney's stories is, let's just take Cinderella. Cinderella is the most enduring story we've had in the past 150 years or so. My parents grew up on it. I grew up on it. Our kids grew up on it. Their kids are growing up, going to grow up on it. Their kids will grow up on it. It's, Cinderella doesn't go away. Okay? The Disney stories don't go away. What is something like a Cinderella story? And you could say this is Snow White. You could say this is Sleeping Beauty and on and on and on. But Cinderella is a, is a, gr a girl like the Samaritan woman whose beauty has been hindered by the cinder of the fireplace, right? The ash. She's covered in ash. 
It's marring her beauty. And as she goes to the ball, she's made beautiful by the fairy princess. She goes to the ball, and it's the king's son. Walt Disney always has it be the king's son, doesn't it? It's always the prince. It's never king charming. It's always prince charming, right? And it's always the love of the king's son that penetrates through the problems, the, the, sleep, the curse of sleep or the cinder covering the beauty of, of the princess and, and all of these things. It's always the king's son and his love for her that, that makes him want to pursue her even if he has to die. Walt Disney caught on to the theme of the gospel, didn't he? And when the prince gets to the bride-to-be, always there's a rescue. Her sleep is over, her beauty is restored, and it's always the most famous three words in these stories that end it is what? Happily ever after. Okay? Now, if you've never seen Cinderella, I should have said spoiler alert at the beginning. Okay? So Matthew 22, Jesus now says the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, just like we talked about weddings in the first century, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. So he says there's people who are already invited, and when they actually get the invite, they're not willing to come. Who do you think Jesus is referring to here? The Jews. Saying, listen, read from Genesis to Malachi. They're, constant under, they're constantly under, under invitation, aren't they? They're under constant invitation. But they were not willing to come. Does this sound familiar? Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. There's a call and an unwillingness to respond to the call. So here's the graciousness of God. And when you hear people say the God of the Old Testament is so much meaner than the God of the New Testament, understand the God of the Old Testament you can identify as the long-suffering God. He's not being mean. He's being very, very patient. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet, and they'll stone them, and they'll kill them, and they'll send more prophets. He's ever suffering for, on behalf of the Jews, calling and calling. So again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see... I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. There's more chances. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, I along with others, believe this is a reference to A.D. 70. What happened in that year? Jerusalem was burned up and destroyed, right? The temple is destroyed. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. I just want to point out for your own consideration, here's two things said of this group. They're called. They're unwilling. I said two, but here's a third. But they're, now they're found not worthy. In other words, the, the not worthy were still called, weren't they? Therefore, go into the highways. Now, this is an expression of get out of Jerusalem and get to where the Gentiles are. 
Therefore, go out into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. In other words, there's, it's not conditioned upon our performance, is it? Both the good and the bad are being invited. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now we just went into a great area of text that many books have been written in the argument of predestination and free will and, and all of that. And when I'm asked, do I believe in predestination? I say, you have to. It's in the Bible. The very word is in the Bible. You can't take the word out of the Bible. Do I believe in man's free will? Absolutely. How many times do we hear uh, God almost pleading with us to believe? Well, then how do they both go together? I'll get back to you as soon as I figure it out. Okay? But both the, the sovereignty of God verses are holy and inspired and true. The responsibility of man is holy and inspired and true. And if this church service went on all day, I would give you my true opinion. But it doesn't, so it won't. Now, what I want, what I want you to see here is this. What is this idea now as... We're told that this is what the wedding feast is like. This is the end times for us. That we're under invitation. Some hearts are just going, that's great, I'm busy, forget it. Then a second call comes out and actually gives more detail about how great it's going to be. They say, but I got my business, I got my family, I got my home, and all these excuses come up. And then the call goes out even further. That fills up the wedding hall. And yet there's somebody there that is not dressed properly. And what is said is done to the one not dressed properly seems out of line, doesn't it? It's not like, hey, go get him a tie. It's bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a clear reference to hell, isn't it? It's a clear reference to hell. Jesus is saying that we could be missing something in our responding to the call. This is somebody who responded to the call. But we could be missing something that could actually land us in hell. And what is that thing? What is this wedding garment? Well, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. And we see when Adam and Eve sin, God pursues them. And he asks them questions. First he'll say, Adam, where are you? Now God is omniscient, correct? So you have this omniscient, all-knowing God asking questions. That seems to be something he shouldn't find the need to do, correct? So why does God ask questions? Where are you, Adam? I hid because I was naked. Another question from the omniscient God. Who told you you were naked? Now there's only one other person on the planet. It's not a long list of people who could tell them, right? So um, 
and the woman said, hey, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, before that, Adam said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So who does Adam blame? He blamed God, the woman you gave me. Okay? He blames God. And then the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, what's the question that God asked the serpent? He doesn't ask a question. He says, because you have done this. So what's the purpose of the questioning from the omniscient God? We're right back to where I, where I was 20 minutes ago. He's testing the heart. There's a redemptive purpose in the questioning. How many of you have had five-year-olds? Okay. Your five-year-old shows up for dinner, before dinner, and says, Mom, Dad, can I have a cookie? And you say, no, we're going to eat in 15 minutes. You can't have a cookie till after dinner. And he walks away sad. 15 minutes later, you say, hey, come on in. We're having dinner. He shows up with crumbs all over his mouth. What's your instinct in that moment? I hope it's, hey, did you, did you take a cookie? It's, it's a question, isn't it? Even though you know he took a cookie, right? Because you're, you're trying to restore and to teach the way God restores and teaches us. So you put them through a series of questions to test the heart. I hope there's nobody sitting here in front of me who, when he sees your five-year-old with crumbs on his mouth, says to your five-year-old, because you have done this, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, for you are more cursed than all my other children. All right? Your instinct is going to be to redeem and to restore. So what do Adam and Eve do now that they've been exposed and the nakedness is a sign of their exposure to sin. They get busy sewing fig leaves together, right? Does God accept that? That covering for their sin, is that accepted? No. God kills an animal. And again, what would be the impact on Adam and Eve? Everything's alive, everything's perfect, everything's wonderful, but now there's a death, and it's my fault. My sin caused that innocent animal to die, right? But the skin of that animal clothes them, covers them. So therefore, it's God's righteous act that covers their sin. That's the story of the cross. This person shows up at this wedding with his own righteousness. He's clothed in his own idea, his own way of getting through the door. And it's not accepted. Because if there's another way besides the cross, then the cross becomes the most foolish act we've ever seen. If there's any other way than faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, then it would only make sense that Jesus would teach us that way so that he wouldn't have to die. But he doesn't teach us any other way. So it's the only way. And this is somebody who has some other interpretation, some other idea. Now, I'm going to bring this one step further before we close to make it a little bit more practical as you walk away here on Sunday afternoon. This wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ covering us. But it's an outward sign that can be seen wherein the righteousness of Christ that's in me right now that allows me to be saved is unseen. So, what does the Bible tell us is an outward manifestation of the inward reality of our salvation? 
What is something we can see that we can know that each other is authentically saved and not showing up the wedding in the wrong garment? The Bible teaches us it's our works. Now, if I said, recite for me Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, most of you would quickly say, we're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works so that no one can boast, correct? Very, very common Bible memorization verses. But very few people memorize the next verse, verse 10, which is essential for fully understanding 8 and 9. So let me do 8 and 9 again. I'll give you 10. We are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, so that nobody can boast. Verse 10 says this, for you are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. The absence of those works indicates the absence of the salvation that you got by faith alone. They go together, so much so that Jesus will say, you'll know who are mine by the love that they show, and another part says by their works, or their fruit, which is their works. You'll know. So guess what just got eliminated in all this, this idea of the carnal Christian? Okay. So if, I'm sorry, but if any of you are sitting here today saying, I do what I do, that's in that I do, I'm a carnal Christian, I'm a Christian, but I'm a carnal Christian. You made that up. That's not a real thing. Jesus says there's outward manifestations of inward realities. And the inward reality of salvation is that you will be conformed to the image of Christ more and more and more as you walk out your faith. And the world will know that you are his by the life that you are leading and living because it'll be sacrificial. It'll be others first. It'll be gracious. And it will make people say, I want what you have. So as we talk about eschatology and end times, I don't want to separate today from the last day. Because today is either a day of your salvation where you wed Jesus Christ like the Samaritan woman did, or today is a day of you exhibiting those outward signs of your inward reality of your salvation. So that when this wedding feast begins, you are of those that are filled with a great joy and entering into the great joy of your heavenly father. Where the Bible tells us, and as somebody who's done too many memorials, I see the great cry of the heart in those memorials is, no more suffering, please. No more pain. No more crying. So when people say, so-and-so passed away, I read them that section of Scripture, Revelation 21, and it says, your loved one in Christ did not pass away. You know what it says, passed away? It says, death passed away that's the only thing that dies is death for the believer so um, first of all I want to tell you what it just a, a humbling honor and privilege it is to be in front of you today that Andrew would think of me uh, to share the word of God the highest privilege anybody could do uh, with you this morning and I pray uh, that uh, we would consider just a couple things from what I talked about today if God would I would have him to have you consider that one, the greatest love we know as human beings is when a man gets down on a knee and says, will you marry me? 
He's so overwhelmed with love for that girl that he will humble himself to this posture of being on one knee to say, I never want to be apart from you again. That is what Jesus has done for you. Two, it is such an impactful relationship that even though he loves you just as he found you, he loves you way too much to leave you that way. He's going to conform you into his image more and more. And your life, you shouldn't have to tell people that you have a relationship with Christ. They should be able to say to you, you're a Christian, aren't you? And the third and final thing is this. Psalm 73 is a wonderful psalm. If Andrew gives you homework, then I'll feel free to say this. Your homework for this week would be this. Read Psalm 73, and right in the middle of that psalm, you're going to see from the beginning to the middle of that psalm, this is happening. He's saying, the, the writer is Asaph. He says, I look, at the, I look at the wicked, and they are having so much fun. They are drinking. They're having sex with whoever they want. They're, they're doing whatever they want. And Asaph says, I started growing jealous. I'm getting jealous of them. They, he says, the wealthy, if they do something wrong, they just throw some money somebody's way and they're not in trouble anymore. I'm getting jealous of the wicked. And then in the middle of that psalm, it says this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, because that's where your perception changes. You've got to, whether it's your Bible, whether it's a prayer closet, wherever it is, you've got to have somewhere where you go, this is the place where I want to be reminded of the things of God. Because he says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then all of a sudden everything changes for Asaph. He says, I went to the sanctuary of God, and I realized what their end would be. And then the next verse says, and I grieved over them. There is no more jealousy for the wicked. It's now grieving because you have to live this life that you're in now with the end in mind because there will be an end. It's an invitation to a wedding feast that never ends. But the only other option is outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the invitation is out. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.